0: Psalm 145, a psalm of praise of David. I will exalt you, my, king, the, my God the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. The word of the Lord.
1: One more time. We are the champions. Psychologists have a term they use to describe the phenomenon of being a sports fan. They call it Berging, B-I-R-G, Basking in Reflected Glory. Stephen Dubner writes in Confessions of a Hero Worshipper, describes Berging this way, recent studies show that a devout fan's moods rise and fall substantially with a team's fortunes. A big victory can buffer depression. The fan might feel more optimistic and confident, even more sexually attractive. He goes on to say that a loss can bring over an entire city, an entire state, moods of uh, darkness and anger. And it's well documented that incidents of domestic violence increase in a losing city. I've been thinking, if a sports team playing a game can cause us to soar or sink, how much more Should there be burger binging when we gather to proclaim, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of His glory. So I'm going to come straight at you. I have a berg test for you. You ready? Question one. Do you find yourself throughout any given day in moments where you are basking in the reflected glory of God where you're thinking about how great he is how good he is how compassionate he's been in your life second question would you use the word passionate to define your relationship describe your relationship with God now the term passionate is not monotheistic, one size fits all. For some of us, it's this, and for some of us, it's, it's this. Whatever passionate is for you, is your relationship with God passionate? Third question. Would you say that on most Sundays, when you leave this room after having encountered God, that your mind is alive, your heart ravished, your voice hoarse from singing for a half hour, did you put your heart into it? This morning, I want us to be informed and challenged by one of the great incidents of burger binging in the Old Testament. It's a psalm, the only psalm, with the title, Praise. And it's the last psalm of David in the psalms. Like his final stress, his last word, he wants us to encounter God in praise. So I'd like for us to do two things this morning. First, we're going to ask the question, why worship? Why praise? We're going to talk about the logic of worship. And then secondly we're going to talk about how to do it, the logistics of praise. Sound good? Are you ready? The logic of praise, the logistics of praise. Let's begin at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. David says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day, every day, I will praise you. And extol your name forever and ever. What we see here is David modeling praise for us. And notice the verbs. Exalt. Praise. Twice. Extol. These are full-throated verbs. Active verbs. My friends, worship is a verb. It's something we do. And we do it every day and we do it with gusto. And then notice how the psalm ends I want to go to the very end these bookends so it starts out by saying that God's people are described by praise it ends by saying my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever the Hebrew it's in the imperative it should actually be a little stronger than this like everybody praise the name of the Lord it's a command so understand that Praise is a descriptive of what Christians do. Christians worship. And then understand that it's also a command. Christians worship. Bookends of praise. And we want to ask the question, why? Why is praise so vital to what a Christian is and does? I mean, does God need a planet full of paparazzi seeking his autograph? I mean, can you imagine what weekends are like for God from the time the sun comes up, you know, on Sundays and all the way around the world, the entire, you know, two plus billion people in the church gathering and telling God how great he is? Is his ego that big? Doesn't he already know how great he is? Why worship? The best uh, pass at that that I've seen is from a writer named C.S. Lewis in his book, Reflections on the Psalms. He actually asked and answers the question, why worship? And while I've changed the language to make it more Waterstone, uh, we need to give him credit for his thoughts about this. And the first thing he says is, now now let's think about this. Whenever you have a, a moment of greatness, it demands a response. Glory demands a response. This is the undeniable logic of worship. Glory demands a response. So you're at the Denver Art Museum. You are standing in front of one of the two Van Goghs down there and you are just captured by it. It's beauty. It's, it's rich. And Lewis asked the question, what do we mean when it says a painting deserves an audience? We are saying that something so beautiful for us to stand there and heap words of affirmation and admiration on the author would not be inappropriate. It would not be out of place. In fact, Lewis says, and I quote, you would be a stupid loser to stand there and not say anything and not be moved in the presence of greatness. Glory demands a response. It's a, it's a justice thing. Greatness needs reaction. And then Lewis pushes it further. He says, and that experience of greatness is not complete until there's praising. Glory demands a response and the response is not complete until there's praising the glory of the object. The world rings with praise, right? We know this. When we see a good movie, when is the experience of a good movie complete? When we go to work the next day and tell our friends about it or, the, uh, or a good book or a good meal. The experience is complete when we tell someone. How about uh, you know the underbellies of politicians, <laughs> or a sports hero becoming legend, or or how about a good joke? When is the experience of a great joke complete? When we tell it. Want to hear my new knock knock joke? Say knock knock. knock, knock. Who's there? <laughs> it works every time. It's the most dependable joke in my repertoire. And I love telling it. The experience of a good joke is complete when we tell it. So Lewis says that the glory demands a response, and the response is complete when there's praising. And then he pushes it to the second logic that's this, that we are wired to give the response, we are wired for worship. We are wired for wow. When we go out and uh, we have a south deck in our backyard and my dog and I in the morning, I let him out, I go out, see the bronco-colored sunrise, I say, wow. My dog doesn't even see it. Why is that? Because we, human beings, are made in the image of God and have this innate ability to respond to beauty and greatness. We're wired for wow. Wow. I love the old clergy folktale about an old minister who, uh, over time, has become addicted to golf. Sure enough, one Sunday, so addicted, he actually calls in sick, gets someone else to preach, go to the church so he can go out and play 18 holes of golf. So the father and Peter are up in heaven, and Peter says, Father, this has gone too far. We need to do something about this. And the father agrees, yes, it's time. It's time for some discipline for this... Uh, Old preacher. So the old preacher, pastor, goes out, starts playing the round of golf on a Sunday morning when he should be preaching, and would you know it, he begins to hit one of the best rounds of golf in his entire life. I mean, the ball, instead of like plopping into the pond, skips across the pond. And it, he's the only below par round of golf, and on the last hole, the only hole in one ever in his golfing adventures. Peter says to the father, Father, I thought you were going to, you know, discipline him. The father replies to Peter, I did. Who's he going to tell? (laughs) (laughs) Glory demands a response. We are wired to give that response. And then the third level of undeniable logic around worship is this, that the greater the object that we worship, the more intense the delight will be. And now David, through the rest of the psalm, is going to take the measure of how great God is, and we see delight seeping out of his words. He's going to model for us how we uh, can, uh, with the greatness of God in, in 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 our the front of us, the greatness of God on our minds, begin to see how intense the delight is, and He walks us through this by four things. He says God saves, and God loves, and God rules, and God provides. Why worship? Because of who God is and how great He is. So let's look at the verses three through seven. God says, Would you read this aloud with me? Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. God saves. Do you see, notice the repetition of the similar phrases, awesome works, great deeds, wonderful works, awesome works. What David is thinking about, no doubt, when he's writing this, is how God has brought, that, really spoke the world into existence, called this nation up through one man and a barren woman named Abraham and Sarah, and then uh, brought Israel out of Egypt, They walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. And then with Joshua's leadership, they conquered the Promised Land. All the enemies and inhabitants of the Promised Land just with holy terror, saying, God must be with this country. And now David and Solomon at the zenith of Israel's power and the two uh, strongest leaders in the world at the time. David's thinking back all the awesome works of God that have brought us to this point. Imagine... How we look back now and proclaim the awesome works of God. Something that David could never have imagined. The son of David, Jesus Christ, with his death forgives our sins. And with his resurrection promises that at the end of our life, we following him will walk through our grave. The awesome works of the mighty god it's interesting in the text it says that the the verse billy quoted one generation commends your works to another it's actually present tense in the hebrew it could literally one generation is commending your works to another it speaks of what's happening now and what the creeds call the communion of saints think about this that right now as we worship abraham isaac and jacob Are before the throne worshiping God and Paul and and Moses and and Benedict and Teresa of Avila and Bach and, and Luther and Calvin and Bonhoeffer and my Papa Butler and you and I before the throne in this communion of Saints all of us even though we've died alive in the presence of God why is that Why does one generation, they are commending your works to another, right now? Because Jesus is the only man who walked out of his own grave by his power, punched a holes in the pitiless walls of death, and says to you and I, follow me, and we too, always in the communion of saints, will be before the face of God, proclaiming the glory of his name. This is why. Jesus, when he was riding into Jerusalem on the last week of his life in what we call the triumphal entry, and all of his followers were putting down their robes and their palm branches as Jesus, riding on the donkey, walked in, and they're shouting. They're shouting the psalm Hosanna, which is Hebrew, for God saves, God saves. And you remember the pastors in Jesus' life, they were put off by this because they said, well, they're worshiping him. And they said to Jesus, Jesus, get your followers under control, would you? Do you remember what Jesus said? He said, if in this moment, as I enter Jerusalem to do these awesome works, if they were not crying out, Hosanna, God saves, God saves, the rocks would cry out my friends the greatest danger to our planet is not the presence of a nuclear bomb it is the absence of worship why do we worship because god saves why do we worship because god loves Dave, uh, david goes on and he quotes here these verses would you read them aloud with me the lord is gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all He has made. I said quotes because these are the exact words from Exodus 34.6. When Moses said to, the, to Yahweh, the, the Lord, Show me your glory. This is what God said to Moses. This is my glory. And we only have time to highlight two words in God's self-revelation of who He is. But the first word is that word, love. God is to be worshipped because God is love. He's he's loving. The word is the word hesed. And it literally means loyal love. It means a love that's based on character. In other words, aren't we glad that God's love for us is not based on our behavior? What? Did you say yes? Yes. Yes. We are so grateful that God's love for us is not based on our behavior. God's love for us is based on His character. Who He is. And He keeps His promises and He is obedient to the covenants that He makes. It's His integrity that determines His love for us. And God loves us it's interesting (laughs) this is the most quoted Old Testament text in all of the Old Testament Exodus 34 6 one of the places it's quoted is at the end of Jonah remember that great story of the prophet Jonah God told him to go to Nineveh Nineveh said heck no I'm going to Spain God gets him back in a water bus uh, uh, a fish or shark or something finally he goes to Nineveh Nineveh, by the way, Jonah is not scared of Nineveh. That's why he doesn't want to go. He actually knows God. And so he goes and he preaches this amazing five-word message, 40 days, turn or burn. (laughs) And the whole country of Assyria, it's modern-day Iraq. The whole country falls down before the God of Israel and says, Save us, save us. And it's one of the greatest revivals in the history of the world, the whole country of Iraq. Iraq bows before God. At the end of it all, Jonah is sitting out under a tree getting some shade and he's pouting. He knew this would happen and he actually quotes this verse to God. And he's, it's like this, Lord, I knew it. I knew you were gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. Dang it! And then... After he quotes it, throws it in God's face, God responds to the prophet. And he says to Jonah, Jonah, you're right. And should I not have compassion on these people who spiritually and in their worldview don't know their right hand from their left? And then, it's there. You need to read. Then he says, and should I not also care for their cows? We always knew God was a Chick-fil-A God. (laughs) What? What? He cares for their cows. He does. It's the entirety of their life. And cows were their economy. Cows were their circumstances of life, their food source. He cares for every part of the Assyrians' lives, even the cows. It's love all the way down, folks. It's love. The other word is compassion. See, it's, it's twice said. What we need, we worship because God is compassionate. It's the literal word in Hebrew. It's rachem. And it's where we get our English girl's name, Rachel. It means womb. It speaks of the fierce mother love of God. God loves you like a mama loves her child. That much. That fierce. Do you know what I'm talking about? Any of you, of us who've had a mother? That love is how God loves us. Can a, a mother ever stop loving her child? I was listening to a TED talk last week by uh, Zanab Salbi who is a, a, an Iraqi woman who started a mini, a, a non called Women for Women International and she's uh, ministering to uh, all world-torn countries all across the globe especially the women and this strength came to her because she grew up during the uh, wars in Iraq when there was bombings constantly and all around. And every time the air sirens would go off and the bombing would start, this Sadab's mother would gather all the siblings and they would kneel down in what they perceived to be the safest place in their house. And she would pull out her finger puppets. Bombs bursting everywhere, violence catastrophe, and she's doing a puppet show for her children. When Zanab was an adult, she asked her mom about this, and her mom said, I wanted you to know that even in the worst chaos of our lives, that at the center of it all is a story of love. My friends, I don't know what you're going through today. What brought you here? Bombs going off. You need to hear this, that at the center of it all, God is telling you a story, and it's love. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have the undying life of God. We worship because God saves. We worship because God loves. We worship, thirdly, because God rules. Again, with me, uh, audience participation. Out loud, all your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. So in a few moments, uh, I'll, I'll ruin the surprise, but one of the great uh, unique uh, aspects of Psalm 145 is it's one of eight acrostic psalms in the, old, in the Psalms. It, it, it has uh, 20 Actually, 21 verses. Uh, the Hebrew alphabet has 22 verses. The N has disappeared in, in the um, transmission of the Scriptures. But each of the verses follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet in an acrostic. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, give me a dollar, hey, is the, uh, the Hebrew there. Not really, but uh, it's an acrostic. And this is the middle of an acrostic, what would be our letters... K-L-M but Hebrew is read backwards so it's actually M-L-K do you know what the Hebrew word for king is? Melik, M-L-K this is a literary masterpiece unfolding in front of us where david is actually spelling the word king and then using the word kingdom four times at the beginning the middle and the end he wants us to know that one of the reasons we worship god is because god is king And all of history and all of time is in his hands. He rules. In fact, that your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Your dominion endures through all generations was on the lips of King Nebuchadnezzar when God humbled the most powerful man in the known world at that time, took away his sanity, took away his kingdom for seven years. And then when Nebuchadnezzar was restored, when he humbled himself, and he realized who God was. He actually wrote a letter to the entire nation of Babylon and quoted that verse. This is who the true God is. One of the reasons that the Christian movement has endured and is growing, it's over 2 billion and growing stronger and stronger, is because every week we come here, we gather, and we proclaim God is our king, which means we know his son and we know his story. We know where all this ends. History is not an endless spiral going nowhere. History is a direct point of movement. Where we know at the end that every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We know how the story ends. We know uh, where it's going. And thus Christians, (laughs) what makes a Christian Christian is the inability to quit hoping. We know how this ends, and so we are relentless in our hope, putting it on display in our daily lives as we walk among the world. We are putting uh, previews of the coming kingdom. We know that there's a rescue plan that Jesus has enacted, and right now he is restoring all things, and one day will come and set everything right. Right now, we are the previews and walking in this relentless hope. So we worship because God saves, we worship because God loves, we worship because God rules, and lastly, we worship because God provides. Again with me, the Lord upholds all who fall, lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him. He hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. This is actually a a string of Hebrew active participles that flow out of Jesus being king, but he's a king who cares. And he's engaged in the everyday moments of life. So for those who are bowed down, it literally means they have a bent back from all the pain and pressures of life. And Jesus is walking next to them. And it talks about it, the, the, the eyes of all look to him to give them food. We'll unpack that a little bit more in a few moments. But just think how God feeds the world every day and feeds you and then it talks about how he answers prayers all who call on him he is the word is near in the hebrew it's the same word for friend every prayer you've ever prayed has been answered now it may not have been in the way you hoped but every prayer you've ever prayed has been answered in the fact that god is near your friend and lastly, it talks about how God watches over all who love Him. He is the protecting God, protecting by planting a spirit in you and giving you forgiveness of sins and promise of eternal life, such that even if the worst happens to you, you you get an upgrade and you go home. He protects all who are his. Why do we worship God? The greater the object, the more intense the delight. Where does this delight come from? It comes from the fact that God saves, and God loves, and God rules, and that God provides. My friends, we're here to worship. God does not need our worship. We need to worship. We need the biggest dose of God we can get on a weekly basis. Otherwise, our lives become small and temporary and self-focused. But when we open up ourselves to the Lord and see His love, His salvation, His rule, our lives become rich in character and story. God doesn't need our worship. We do. We need to worship. And that's the logic of praise. So then the second thing we want to ask is, well, how does burger binging look? How do we praise? And here I want to go to the acrostic. This is just an amazing piece of literature. You can imagine, right, if you were asked to sit down and write a poem to God and use the 26 letters of the English alphabet and go through and write each verse something about God, it would take you some time. The first thing we want to notice about worship is that it's an intellectual exercise. It's mind work. It's like sitting down and writing that acrostic and thinking things through. But notice, to point out two quick things, David uses the Scriptures in his acrostic. He quotes Exodus 34, as we've alluded. You see, that's why we as Christians, in our worship, it's always anchored by the book, the Bible. That's why you come here and, you know, in theory, get a 35-minute, which is often 45-minute message every week. Because we're anchored to this book, because when it talks about what worship should be, worship should be the weekly immersion in the sun, S-O-N, and in the sun's story. And that is this, the biography of Jesus and the plan for the world is right here. We're anchored to it. We look at the book. It's been this way from the beginning. Uh, I want to share with you a quote from Justin Martyr, writing in 140 A.D., And on the day called Sunday, all who live in the cities or in the country gather together to one place, and the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read, and as long as time permits. Then when the reader had ceased, the the president, the pastor, verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. It's been going on since the very beginning, 140 A.D. It continues today. How do we fill up our acrostics? We think God's thoughts after him. We use the Bible. But it's also interesting how David fills the acrostic at the end when he talks about how God, the king, is engaged in the daily providence of the world. I love the verse where it talks about all the world looks to him for their food. You know, if we're paying attention... It's just amazing how God is at work every day in our lives. I'll never forget when we had uh, new neighbors that moved in across the street from us, an older couple. We invited them over. Their names were Elmer and Betty. First thing that Elmer does when he walks into his house, our house, my house, is Jan and my house. Let me get, that. he opens our refrigerator door and he looks in and says, Oh, I see two gallons of milk. He shuts the refrigerator door. Okay, I, I register that. We sit down at the table. We're getting to know each other. Elmer asked my oldest son Ethan, who was eight or nine years old at the time Ethan, where does milk come from? And poor Ethan, he said, King Supers. <laughs> Elmer and Betty were retired dairy farmers from South Dakota. And Elmer engaged on my eight year old son. <laughs> No, it does not come from King Supers. Milk comes from cows. And they're milked twice a day, at dawn and at dusk, for four years. And then after we pull all that milk out of them, after four years, they're sold to become the meatloaf you're about to eat and the shoes you are wearing. The world runs on cows. Every time I open my refrigerator door, I hear that. We have two gallons of skim milk and 1% because I don't like water on my cereal. So I think of cows that run the world. Folks, if we're paying attention, we realize that every single day, God feeds six billion plus people. Every day. That is a miracle on par with feeding a crowd of 20,000 Uh, From five loaves and two fish that is a miracle on par with turning water into wine and it happens every day in front of us If we're watching So we fill up our acrostics By knowing the word and by watching the world So worship is an intellectual exercise its work But secondly worship is an emotional exercise the acrostic when was the last time you wrote an acrostic? I bet I could guess. It was when you were in junior high and you had a crush on that student sitting three rows back, three rows over. And on your brown grocery bag book cover, you wrote your name and her name and crossed them at the vowels. Isn't there something playful about an acrostic? Isn't there something, may I use the word, romantic? Now, all the guys in the room were saying, ah. I want to remind you who's writing this acrostic. It's a guy named David. He killed some guys this time. He was one of the best generals in the history of the world. He could leap over a wall, Psalm 18 says. This is a man's man. This is a warrior who's getting playfully romantic with his God. Folks, when we gather here, week in week out we gather to worship the one who has spoken the world into existence who has led his people through dry ground through the Red Sea who has given them bread from heaven the awesome works of God we worship the one who put the blood of his own son on the mercy seat so our sins could be forgiven we worship the one who has maneuvered his way into our lives to show us who that Jesus is and what reality means Worship, if it's going to be anything, it cannot be half hearted. Worship is an emotional experience. Every time we gather, we have a catalog of emotions that should be present. Now, again, it will look different. Some of us are more emotional outwardly and others are more emotional inwardly. It will look different for everybody. The question that David brings to you, though, this morning is, is your heart in worship when you're sitting here? Are you putting your heart into worship? So let me close with two suggestions as to how to engage our mind And give our heart. First suggestion when you're coming to corporate worship, prepare in advance. Do you think about worship before you worship? Do you plan the day, plan the morning? Do you give any thought at all that you are about to sit down here and encounter the one revealed as the consuming fire? Annie Dillard said if we really knew what we were doing in worship, the ushers would hand out crash helmets and there'd be seat belts in the chair. <laughs> Do we really understand what we're doing here? We are like kids playing with a chemistry set. And we come in so late. Oh, sorry so casually? Is there any thought at all for worship before we worship? Prepare in advance. I mean, you prepare in advance when you watch the Super Bowl. You prepare in advance before a job interview. You prepare in advance before a date. Most everything else in life you prepare in advance should not worship be one of those things. Prepare in advance and secondly, dare to dance. C.S. Lewis ends us. He says, the most valuable thing the Psalms do for me is, and this is a Brit writing, by the way, is to express that same delight in God which made David dance. Now I don't, want dan- I don't know what dancing will look like for you, but the question is, is when you're here, is your heart in it? And what will that look like for you? Have you even imagined the possibilities of a heart so full of the delight in God that your body has to respond? <laughs> Dear ancient fathers, when they described the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they described him as the peri corazzo. Peri means circle, corazzo is choreographed, the dance. The Trinity is the eternal circle dance of God. This morning, God is inviting you, your mind, your heart, to come into the circle and let them dance around you, and you dance with them. If you say to Jesus, as we've already sung, but you say it, I'm yours, then your sins are forgiven. You have the promise of eternal life, and even now the great mission that we call the kingdom, it's yours, and the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit want to dance with you.